It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The House has passed a bill that would recognize same-sex marriages under federal law and extend legal protections to all married couples. Now Senate Democrats are trying to build Republican support for the Respect for Marriage Act, which passed the House with 47 Republicans joining all Democrats. Jim Obergefell, who was the plaintiff in the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage, says the threat to marriage equality is real. We have a sitting Supreme Court justice who has made it clear he does not believe marriage equality should stand. And he has given a clarion call to opponents of marriage equality across the nation to come after marriage. My guest is Catherine Frankie, a professor at Columbia Law School and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. Explain why it's important to codify same-sex marriage. Well, there's some fear that after the Dobbs decision and the way that the court approached the overruling of Roe versus Wade, that decisions like Obergefell from 2015 that secured marriage rights for same-sex couples uh, may be next on the chopping block in the Supreme Court. So advocates in the LGBTQ community and others are worried about what might happen in the Supreme Court over the next couple of years. And so the Congress wants to take some action to at least partially secure marriage rights um, in anticipation of those rights perhaps being reversed in the Supreme Court as a constitutional matter. What would the Respect for Marriage Act do? Well, some of the media have covered it as codifying or putting into law the Obergefell decision, which it does not do. What it does do is repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a law that was passed some time ago and challenged in the Supreme Court successfully that defined marriage as a union between one man and one woman for federal legal purposes, for all federal benefits. So the first thing it does is repeal the Defense of Marriage Act and thereby removing a discriminatory definition of marriage, which would spring back into action because it was never repealed by Congress 
should the Supreme Court reverse the Obergefell decision and possibly another decision involving a challenge to DOMA itself. So the first thing it does is repeal DOMA. The second thing it would do is say that every state has to respect a legal marriage from any other state. So say you live in Texas and your state decides that it will no longer recognize same-sex marriages and you travel to New York and get married and then return to Texas, Texas has to recognize that marriage just as it does with any other kind of marriage. And it says that those states also cannot refuse to recognize legal marriages from another state if the basis for doing so is discrimination based on race, sex, national origin, or ethnicity. And here what we're looking at is Congress trying to create a kind of equality principle when it comes to marriage, not just for same-sex couples, but for interracial couples and for couples that may be discriminated against based on their national origin or ethnicity. You know, the United States has a long history of discriminating against Asian people in access to marriage. When male Chinese workers were brought into the United States to do a lot of labor in the 19th century, they were not allowed to bring wives or women from China who they might marry, and Chinese men were prohibited from marrying white women. And the idea was that they wanted a fixed labor source of male Asian workers, but they didn't want them to be able to set up families and have children. And there are a number of other uh, federal laws that were passed in the 19th century and actually were not found invalid until well into the 20th century that discriminated in marriage on the basis of one's Asian identity. And so including national origin and ethnicity in the federal law actually goes beyond same-sex marriage and recognizes the history of racial and other forms of discrimination in our sad history, unfortunately. Two Republican senators are co-sponsors of the bill Two others have signaled support for the bill. Eight other Republican senators have indicated they would vote against it. Do you think they can get the votes to pass this in the Senate? Well, it's always a heavy lift to get over the filibuster and to get 60 votes in the Senate. I will say that same-sex marriage polls very positively nationally, and Republican senators are aware of that. They recently voted against securing abortion rights, whether it's Roe versus Wade or even more aggressive measures to protect access to the full range of reproductive health care. And as they go into the election season in the fall, there are some Republicans who may want to distinguish themselves as not bigoted across the whole spectrum of issues, but actually in favor of some civil rights measures, including access to marriage for same-sex couples and prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity or national origin. So as a messaging matter, it might not be a bad idea for some Republicans to support this when it's otherwise a pretty popular issue. Thankfully, we haven't seen the retreat in support for same-sex marriage rights that we have seen, of course, in the last many years in abortion rights. Some Republican senators have indicated that this bill isn't necessary. Senator Marco Rubio called it a stupid waste of time. Well, it's easy to call something a stupid waste of time if your marriage is not on the chopping block. And part of why I think that Representative Nadler, who moved this in the House, moved so quickly was that he was getting thousands and thousands of calls from constituents and others across the country, people who were in marriages who were afraid their marriages would be undone by the Supreme Court and that they might lose their children and their homes 
mean, this is a real important issue, not on just the symbolic level, but on the everyday kind of legal status of lesbian and gay people in this country. And they're really frightened that what is happening around abortion will also start happening in the gay community. So for Senator Grubio to say that this is a stupid issue merely speaks to his privilege that this issue doesn't touch him. His marriage is not on the chopping block, but many other people's may be. And it's a a kind of crude sense of insensitivity, I would say, to how frightened so many people are by how radical the Supreme Court is right now and really how hateful they are. So this Defense of Marriage Act that's before the Senate now, it's important to understand that it will not force all states to recognize same-sex marriages like the Obergefell decision does. What it will do is force states to recognize marriages from other states and to not discriminate against people in those marriages on the basis of their sex, race, national origin, or ethnicity. So states like Texas or Florida or others could still, after Obergefell might be reversed, they could still refuse to marry same-sex couples, or for that matter, interracial couples, but they would have to recognize valid marriages from other states. So this bill doesn't completely turn the Obergefell decision into federal law and insulate it from the Supreme Court, but it goes quite a ways towards um, defending some of the rights secured in Obergefell. This is such a difficult time for the LGBTQ community. You mentioned Florida. You know, they have that don't say gay law. Texas Mm -hmm. is targeting gender affirming care for transgender adolescents. Why do you think this targeting of LGBTQ people when it seems as if, you know, that group has come to be accepted in this country? Well, I would say that lesbian and gay people and some lesbian and gay people have become accepted in this country trans people and other non-binary or gender non-conforming people, not so much. And so that work still remains, is to humanize and give dignity to the full range of people in each of those letters of LGBT and Q. But I, I think what we're really seeing, and this has been going on for a number of years, is an effort to motivate the most radical right-wing members of the Republican Party's base. This issue seems to get people to the polls, whether it's targeting trans kids, which I just think is appalling. And these are these are children. And the idea that you might fear that you'd be taken away from your parents because their understanding about your gender identity is just shocking. But it does motivate some of the more extreme members of the Republican Party to vote. Um, and we've seen this year after year, whether it's bathroom bills or bills having to do with trans girls um, competing in sports. And now it just seems to be open season for all members of the LGBTQ community. And we'll see in the fall where it pays off. But it, it's a go-to strategy for an increasingly um, radical right-wing Republican Party is to go after the most vulnerable people in society. And that consistently is LGBTQ people, but particularly trans and gender nonconforming people of color. The House also passed a bill to protect the right to access contraception. People think that that's going to have a harder time getting through the Senate than the gay marriage bill. Well, I think anything that looks like it's in the family of rights associated with abortion is going to be a more difficult lift in the Senate. But something that has at some distance from abortion and the rights of the LGBTQ community, of course, overlap to some degree 
with the abortion right, but not entirely. And in the public's mind, I think people see them as distinct issues. And so I would be surprised if we could find 60 votes in the Senate at this point for any bill that looks like it's kind of related to the abortion issue, notwithstanding the fact that uh, access to abortion is something an overwhelming majority of people in this country support. So polling is only part of what's driving those decisions. I also think it's the optics of a runaway train of of the anti-abortion movement capitalizing on their victory in the Dobbs decision, and they will give no quarter to any other issue that might be seen as related to the abortion issue and their agenda of controlling the reproductive lives of Americans. So do you think that their next target is contraception? Not all of them, but certainly some of them. And they've said it quite openly. Um, With the bills that are being proposed in state legislatures across the country, uh, there are a range of uh, what we kind of take for granted as forms of reproductive health care um, that they want to ban or make very, very difficult to access. Um, there are people who are engaging in in vitro fertilization or other reproductive ass- assisted um, technologies who are moving embryos out of their states because they're afraid if their state legislature defines a fertilized egg as a human being, they will no longer have custody or control over those fertilized embryos. There are pharmacists and other providers who are no longer prescribing or filling the prescriptions of certain forms of contraception that are not abortifacients. They're not in any way forms of abortion, but healthcare providers are so afraid now of being prosecuted by overly zealous district attorneys and even state prosecutors that they're actually chilled from providing what is still legal but contested forms of reproductive health care. And this is exactly the goal, I think, of this very aggressive, what I call forced birth movement. I'm not even going to use the term anti-abortion anymore because I think it's become much more radical, is to both enact these laws, limiting access to reproductive health care, but also scare people enough into not providing it or seeking access to it that they don't even need to pass the laws. And that's, that's happening in many states across the country as we speak. And I think doctors are finding themselves in a very difficult position on the one hand of knowing that their oath to provide care and the best care uh, to their patients puts them at risk of possible prosecution and prison. And as a result, the healthcare system is, is failing. People who have very serious medical conditions and are at risk of death, they're women with ectopic pregnancies. So there are permutations to this which are wide-sweeping and undermine what we understand to be basic, responsible health care. Thanks, Catherine. That's Professor Catherine Frankie of Columbia Law School. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. 
Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Cryptocurrency lender Celsius Network, one of the largest cryptocurrency lenders, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The latest casualty of a $2 trillion crash that's wiped out some of the industry's biggest names and exposed hundreds of thousands of individual investors to steep losses. My guest is Thad Wilson, a partner at King & Spaulding. So tell us about Celsius and what happened to make it file for bankruptcy. There are a number of factors in terms of why Celsius uh, filed for bankruptcy, in part due to the substantial decrease in the value of, of crypto assets over the course of the last 30 to 60 days. That's been the biggest driving factor, uh, but there are a number of other factors specifically with respect to Celsius and are unique to its business. And a lot of those are, are laid out in the first day presentation that the debtors have posted to their claims website. And that's highly unusual under the circumstances for, for a debtor to provide that type of a background for creditors and for the court in advance of, of the first day hearing. Why do you think it's doing that? Well, I think there's a lot of mystery around cryptocurrency in general for the public, as well as for individuals who might be using the Celsius platform or any other crypto platform. And they might not understand the intricacies of how the cryptocurrency world operates. So I think from a background perspective, and since Celsius is one of the first cryptocurrency bankruptcies to be filed in the United States, I think it was important for the lawyers for Celsius to try to educate the court. Here you have Judge Wiles in the Southern District of New York who is handling the Celsius bankruptcy case, and they're trying to educate investors and users of their platform as well because there are a number of issues of first impression that may not be obvious to the general public or to users of the Celsius platform or to the court. A regular company in bankruptcy, is it clear what order the debtors are paid off in? Yes. Yeah, so in, in a normal bankruptcy case, the absolute priority rule is a fixed long-time policy that's in, ensconced in the bankruptcy code. And so that absolute priority rule sets forth the payment of priorities, first to you know secured lenders, then to unsecured lenders, then to equity. In a normal bankruptcy case, everybody kind of understands how that world works. There are obviously some variations on the theme, 
depending on the nature of the company. But under the circumstances, most folks understand how the game is played in the context of a typical Chapter 11 company, say, for example, a manufacturer. The creditors know who gets paid in what order, and the professionals who are advising the company understand how those payments will be paid out over time to the various classes of creditors and equity holders if there's some residual value that flows to equity. Celsius has unwound nearly all of its loans at decentralized finance platforms. In the past month, it paid back more than $900 million of its debt. Is that copacetic? I mean, were they allowed to do that? Yeah, so that's a really great question, June. So it, the answer is, I think there are a lot of issues in the cryptocurrency space that are being raised by the Celsius bankruptcy case and the lead up to that bankruptcy case. There are issues of first impression and that will be substantially litigated as part of the Celsius and other cryptocurrency bankruptcies. So whether or not uh, it's copacetic or otherwise permissible to make those payments to various parties in the lead up to a bankruptcy case will be, I'm sure, heavily litigated in the course of, of these bankruptcy cases. But I would note that in a typical bankruptcy case, a debtor can repay whomever it wants according to whatever priorities it sets from a bankruptcy planning perspective. And so it's not unusual that certain vendors would get paid ahead of other vendors, particularly if those vendors are critical to the company's success or to the to the success of a potential bankruptcy filing. So it's not unusual to have a preference of payments to certain constituencies, but those may create additional issues inside of the bankruptcy. For example, when we're talking about preferential payments, and there are some unique aspects to smart contracts and to cryptocurrency in general that make that type of preference analysis a little bit trickier than it would be uh, if you were uh, in the course of a, of a manufacturing bankruptcy, for example. Might Celsius have paid those off because those platforms are often, you know, what you have to be over collateralized and maybe they'll get some money back from that? You know, I think that's certainly a possibility, June. I am not as familiar with all of the details on Celsius and why it made the decisions it made, but certainly there's an in- intricacy of of the contracts that are at issue, particularly in the cryptocurrency world and in DeFi, decentralized finance, that there's a significant interplay between certain contracts freeing up liquidity in terms of loans that were over-collateralized, and so getting the value of some of that over-collateralization back. There are a number of other contract structures that are in place in these decentralized finance platforms that otherwise may have caused Celsius to pay the those down prior to other creditors or or, or other constituencies, but I'm not familiar with any of the details of those particular contracts. You mentioned the term smart contract. Explain what that is. Yes. So a smart contract is a a contract that is on the blockchain. Uh, And a smart contract basically has a number of provisions in it. They're, They're typically uh, like if we're talking about uh, decentralized finance, those types of contracts are, are in, in layman's terms, simple loan contracts, um, and they typically have uh, you know, features that are similar to, to loans uh, in the sense that they 
uh, have default provisions. They set interest rates. They set the amount that's borrowed. They set the collateral if there is any collateral, things of that nature. But they're self-executing. So in other words, if if the contract is is a smart contract, then if there's a default and a default is called under the under the contract, it's automatically executing, uh, and uh, the collateral that's pledged for the loan is is seized at that point in time, uh, making it uh, and then and then those funds uh, are on the blockchain. So it it takes out a lot of the the work of bankers, lawyers, et cetera, in, you know, when making the calls. So it, it, it essentially takes out some of the administrative costs associated with a, with a typical, uh, you know, loan transaction that you might other, otherwise see. You know, the users, the average people, in case of insolvency, what are the terms? Is there any guarantee that or promise that they'll get their money back? I think that's a great question, June. I think that, um, you know, I haven't studied any of the customer contracts uh, in the Celsius uh, case. Um, and so I don't know exactly, you know, what uh, users might uh, expect in terms of a return. Um, but I think this is an issue that's going to be significant. Again, it's going to engender a significant amount of litigation, I suspect, because it's a, an issue of first impression in the Celsius case. There are a, a number of issues that it implicates, um, including whether these are, you know, assets that are being held in trust for for the customers, the users uh, of Celsius, or whether or not Celsius had the right to use them uh, for other purposes, um, much like a bank does when they, you know, w- when you take out a loan from uh, a lending institution, the lender then can use those deposits and, and loan on those deposits. So. I think there's a lot of questions around these issues um, that are going to get litigated in the course of of the Celsius bankruptcy case and probably others that that are likely to follow on. And to layer some complexity onto that, there are there are other issues that are that are implicated, right? So uh, a lot of the cryptocurrency firms that are that are out there have taken a a position that that cryptocurrency is not a security. So are these um, accounts like brokerage accounts that you would have at a securities intermediary uh, or a brokerage house? Um, you know, I think the, there's a significant debate, particularly in academic circles, but also on the regulatory side as to how, how these types of assets can and should be managed. Uh, and that implicates a number of, of issues inside of a bankruptcy case. Uh, and in particular around, you know, who has the right to what pool of funds. Because if if amounts are held in trust for a customer, well, it's expected that those amounts will be available uh, and, and be returned to the customer uh, at the end of the day. Is this the first such bankruptcy? To my knowledge, it's the first uh, bankruptcy of a crypto lender. You have Three Arrows Capital, which is another um, another firm that, that is, I believe, in administration or liquidation in the Cayman Islands. You also have uh, Voyager, and Voyager, I believe, is in its own kind of restructuring situation, but I'm not as familiar with the details on that one. So this is going to be a first in many respects. Does that mean that this bankruptcy will take longer than a bankruptcy of a, of a regular company? 
Yeah, so uh, uh, a couple of observations on that front, June. So uh, in general, I would expect some of these issues to uh, certainly be litigated significantly. Uh, The Bankruptcy Code provides a process through which uh, appeals of of decisions at the bankruptcy court level can get certified directly to the Court of Appeals, um, which would bypass the initial step of going to the district court uh, for rulings on appeal. Because of the nature of these questions that are going to be raised in, in the context of of the uh, Celsius bankruptcy case and the Voyager bankruptcy case, which is also you know, pending, uh, I believe, in the Southern District of New York, Though, and, and Voyager is a, is a brokerage um, as opposed to a lender, uh, I, I think what we're going to see between those two bankruptcies is a number of uh, attempts to go on a direct appeal to the Second Circuit to try to get a number of these issues resolved and resolved more quickly. Whether or not the litigants are are ultimately successful uh, in going directly to uh, the Court of Appeals, the Second Circuit in this case, uh, it, it, it remains to be seen. But I would expect these uh, bankruptcy cases and the litigation that's going to arise from these uh, bankruptcy cases to take some time before the the issues are resolved. But one observation just generally, when you have a complicated set of facts and circumstances like you do uh, in in the Celsius bankruptcy case, a lot of times those issues will get get worked out uh, in terms of the way that there's compromises uh, at at, uh, different levels with different constituents. But again, because these are issues of first impression, I, I would expect that uh, a number of these issues will get taken up on appeal, uh, certainly to the district court and maybe to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and potentially to the Supreme Court, ultimately. We covered some of the issues of first impression. Are there any other issues of first impression that you want to discuss? Yeah, so I think that there, you know, in the context of cryptocurrency, there are a number of issues. So number one, you've got perfection issues in terms of how does how does a lender perfect uh, on account of cryptocurrency? There, the Uniform Commercial Code uh, is currently in the process of of going through some amendments to address the issue, but those amendments haven't been adopted yet uh, by the Uniform. Uh, com- uh, the Commission on Uniform Laws, or by any states yet. And so uh, the perfection issues, I think, uh, are, are ones that all parties to um, cryptocurrency bankruptcies need to be uh, attuned to, because uh, just because somebody believes that they're perfected in the cryptocurrency uh, doesn't mean they'll necessarily be perfected in the cryptocurrency. So I think we're going to see some perfection fights uh, in, in connection with uh, you know, the Celsius bankruptcy case, but also other cryptocurrency bankruptcy cases. Uh, I think that there's a significant extraterritoriality issue uh, of uh, first impression. So a lot of the the parties to the DeFi contracts are not uh, parties uh, that are necessarily in the United States. Keep in mind, a lot of these transactions occur on the blockchain, and because of that, um, a number of these companies are are in far-flung jurisdictions. 
you know, some of the biggest traders and, and parties in the cryptocurrency space are not located in the United States. They're in Singapore, they're in London, they're in South America. Uh, some are in, you know, uh, islands uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, and so there's, there's an issue about um, how you can try to recover, you know, assets that might be, uh, you know, sitting in accounts uh, that are held overseas or where there's a contract counterparty that's overseas. Um, and uh, what does that uh, entail in terms of ultimate recovery for creditors and and other constituents in a, in a uh, bankruptcy case uh, like Celsius, like a Voyager, and others? So I think that the extraterritoriality issue is one that uh, I think is going to be litigated and will take some time to sort through. And in part because that's uh, kind of a hotbed issue in terms of fraudulent transfer law in the in the U.S. And there's a disagreement among judges in terms of the, the long-arm reach of U.S. bankruptcy law and being able to claw back money that might have gone to parties outside the United States. But I think that will be certainly an issue that's litigated uh, in in these bankruptcy cases, because again, if you look at the presentation uh, that that Celsius has provided for purposes of of its first day hearing, which is I believe going on right now, th- there's only I think a couple of of U.S. entities or a handful of U.S. entities that have actually filed for bankruptcy. There's a number of entities that are in you know uh, among other countries: Serbia, Lithuania, Israel, Cyprus, Gibraltar. Those are those are non-debtor entities in the context of Celsius, but their contract counterparties for a number of the entities are probably you know uh, parties that are based outside the United States. So I think extraterritoriality is a, a significant issue in these cryptocurrency bankruptcies. Thanks so much, Thad. That's Thad Wilson, a partner in financial restructuring at King and Spalding. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.